stamped thine own image deep on our heart. I don't know if anything more important could be said this morning than that there. The reality of that. I greet you this morning in the worthy name of that Lord Jesus, that harmless and sinless Son of God, who came on earth for us and lives forever again, still lives forever for us. So we greet you in that name. Thank you that you're here. As far as the children's lesson this morning, I think we could probably all add stories to what we heard. To um, to what uh, I mean, I think of one particular one, but I won't bore you with it. But uh, when um, talk about our childhood and things that we did and that we either told or didn't tell our parents, we have stories. How about now? <laughs> How up-to-date is that? So thank you. Thank you, Michael, for sharing that with us. This morning, I would like to continue with uh, on the uh, book study of Ruth, and I think I'm in the most interesting chapter of the Bible, Ruth chapter 3. Very, very interesting passage here. Ruth chapter 3 is, of course, the whole book of Ruth is set in those turbulent time of the judges. And we've been going through, and as we have found out, the story starts with Trouble. God's people were in trouble. There was a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. There was a famine in the house of bread. It shouldn't happen. It really shouldn't happen that a place called the house of bread has no bread. But it happened. There was no bread in the house of bread. So, and uh, we believe this is probably because of the judgment of God. God was judging his people. Here goes a family, the Abimelech. Abimelech and his family, he takes his family out from, maybe he took them out from the judgment of God. He figured he can go to this other place that has bread. But the judgment of God followed him there. And as you know the story, Naomi came back alone. Everyone died there. She came back alone except for a daughter-in-law, Ruth. And she came back from Moab at the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 2 was all about one day in Ruth's life. Ruth and Naomi's life was mostly about Ruth. She is, in today's terms, she is a new Christian now. She has just recently forsaken her people and her gods and her land to embrace Naomi's people and Naomi's God and Naomi's land, her culture. She was a new convert to the God of Israel. Now, Naomi and Ruth were as poor as 
what they say as poor as church mice. They had no male provider for them. And in those days, if you had no male providers in your household, you were very limited what you could do. So they faced long-term hardship and poverty. And as we read, Naomi was quite bitter about her lot in life. But put yourself in her shoes or her sandals in this case. Not only did she lose all her family, all those memories and emotions that she came back to the land where all those memories and emotions were from her when times were better. And she had nothing but a hard life in poverty to look forward to. Growing old alone and growing old and feeble without any reliable way to clothe or feed herself. How would you feel in that situation? So, Ruth, they came back and Ruth begins to walk in the provisions that God gave for her. She began to glean. They came back at the beginning of barley harvest, and I don't bore you with the details, but she began to walk in the provision that God had provided. She began to glean. And it so happened that she was in this field of this man named Boaz, and she met this man, and this man gave her blessings. And there was this interaction going, and this man, actually Boaz, told her to continue to come back to his field. And so she had, in the first day, at, not at work, but the first day of salvaging, she got a certain amount of security and provision, a certain amount. And so we ended the last time on the last verse in chapter 2. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now we're ready for chapter 3. It's a very interesting chapter in which Boaz, Ruth, Ruth proposes to Boaz in some shape or form, okay? We're going to study that a little bit. But she does it in a very unconventional way. Chapter 2 is about one day in, in Ruth's life. Chapter 3 is about one night in Ruth's life. One night. <clears throat> Let's just pause for a word of prayer right now. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We are again amazed and amazed over and over again, Lord, at the revelation you have given to us. And Lord, that your heart, your will, and, uh, and uh, instruction and the examples and for good and for bad come through your word. Lord, we have sung a few songs this morning that lift up your word. And truly, your word is worthy to be lifted up because it reveals you, it reveals your heart, and reveals your will for us. Lord, this morning, I pray you be with us as we look into your word and instruct us 
Instruct us, Lord, from your heart to our heart this morning. Help us to understand your word and to walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may dwell, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winneth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Naomi is looking out ahead. It is true that the God of Israel had provided in his law, has provided a provision for poor people. They could glean. They could glean after the harvesters and they could get some provision. That is true. And Ruth had walked in that provision. And they didn't starve. They were poor, but they were surviving. Life was hard, but it was not unbearable. But the God of Israel had something better and more permanent outlined in his word in provision for these people, for his childless widows, rather. And Naomi was ready to move ahead in that provision that was designed by God. And it had to do with this Boaz. In the last chapter, when when Ruth was telling Boaz, when she came home from her day with, Bo, uh, with gleaning, she said, And the man with whom I wrought today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her, That man is near kin to us, one of our next kinsmen. Now, that word, our next kinsman, is a very specific word in Hebrew. It's a specific, specific meaning to it. It means the kinsman redeemer. It's a specific word that means to buy back or salvage or avenge something or someone else. It's often used when someone is in a position of privilege or power or strength who helps or saves someone in need. The first, here's one of the first times it is used in the Bible. And it's in Exodus, and I'll just read two, cha- uh, two verses out of Exodus chapter 6. And we'll look at the second time this word is used in the Bible. God is speaking to Moses just before the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, And I have also heard of the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage. And here's the, here's the, that word, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. God is in power. The Israelites are in bondage. God is going to save them from misery. He is going to redeem them. In the context and the meaning of the word as it used here is a very specific. It's a little more narrower than that. 
It's speaking of an official or a legal responsibility that a relative has toward another family member. And those responsibilities are spelled out in the law of God. Vine says the kinsman redeemer was responsible for preserving the integrity, the life, the property, and the family name of his close relative. Or for executing justice upon his murderer. Here you have one of your family members is killed. You are responsible to make sure justice is served if you're a close relative. And that's why they had those cities of refuge that uh, someone who killed someone accidentally could run to because the avenger of blood, the avenger of blood is the same word, kinsman. It's the same thing. You are doing something for your close relative. So Boaz, here we are. He is a kinsman redeemer. Let's explore a little bit what that means. To understand the local situation that Naomi is dealing with here, we are going to, there's a few things we need to understand a little bit. It has to do with land and family. This morning the title of the message is The Law of the Land. Remember these two things. We have land and we have family. Israel's land and Israel's family lines. Let's look at land first. God gave the promised land, the land of Canaan, that land which flows with milk and honey, that land with valleys and hills, which drinketh the water of heaven. God gave that land to the children of Israel. And then God divided up the land. Each tribe except, except the Levites, each tribe got a section of that land. So you had Ephraim, you had Judah, you had Gad, and you have Naphtali and Reuben, all these tribes got a section of that promised land. Then, whatever tribe a person was in, that land got divided up into clans and families and so on. So the land got divided up. Each family received an allotment of land. Now, I have a question. Who owned the land? Any idea? Whose land was it? Okay. (laughs) Who is in charge of it? Okay, I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 25, 23. God is speaking. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. God's land. For ye are strangers and sojourners with me. So it says that it's God's land. But what does that mean? And what difference does it make if it's God's land or your land? What difference does that make? The living, New Living Translation 
brings it out this way, that verse. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis, for the land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. So it may be sold. The land that you have may be sold, but not on a permanent basis. What does that mean? My best understanding in rural Israel, that each young man, when he got married, got a portion of land. Some of his family land, or at least in potential inheritance, he got it. And then that land was perpetuated to his children. And there was lots of land. You think, well, my, my 50 acres is going to be divided up to my 10 children. That's going to be five, 10 acres. And they're going to have five, five sons. And we're going to be in little garden plots in a couple generations. But it wasn't quite that way. God said about, uh, God said this about talking about Israel's enemies. He said, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the fields multiply against thee. Little by little will I drive them out until thou be increased and inherit the land. So there was lots and lots of land. One of the earliest settlers in our area was Hans Graf. That's why that area where I grew up is called Grofedal or Grafdale. Hans had 10,000 acres of virgin land. He got, I don't know if he got it from William Penn or for sure, or maybe there was someone in between, but he had 10,000 acres. One man, 10,000 acres. And when his sons needed farms, that land got divided up among his sons. And I, the farm that I was born on and raised on was part of the original 10,000 acres. It was part of the land that was given to one of Hans Graf's sons. But the Grafs no longer owned the land. It, somewhere back there, had gotten sold outside the family. And so, it was no longer a part of the Graf family heritage today. Now, this would not have happened in Israel. Why not? Well, I'm going to read Leviticus 25, that what the one verse that I read, and read a few more verses, and I am going to read it in the New Living Translate. It's a paraphrase. But it brings right up to the surface what, I, what, I, what I'd like to communicate. The land must never be sold. Uh, it's Leviticus 25 and verses 23 to 28. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis, for the land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. With every purchase of land, you must grant the seller the right to buy it back. Now, what does that mean? When you sell land, he has the right to buy it back. How does this work out in real life? Well, then he goes on to explain. This is the law. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell some family land, 
then a close relative should buy it back for him. If there is no close relative to buy the land, but the person who sold it gets enough money to buy it back, then he has the right to redeem it or to buy it back from the one who bought it. The price of the land will be discounted according to the number of years until the next year of Jubilee. In this way, the original owner can then return to the land. But if the original owner cannot afford to buy back the land, it will remain with the new owner until the next year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee year, the land must be returned to the original owners so they can return to their family land. And I'm not going to go into the Jubilee year, every 50th year of the Jubilee, where everybody, all the debts were canceled, all the slaves were freed, as far as Israelite slaves, and everything was reverted back. Every 50 years, you had a reset button. But land was a permanent family inheritance. Not the houses inside a walled city. If you sold, if you owned a house inside a, inside a city that had walls around it, if you sold that house, you had one year privilege to buy it back. After a year, it was permanently the new owner's house, and he would have the same privileges. But when it came to the land itself, it was, it was a family inheritance. So remember, we're talking about land, land and family lines. I'm going to give you one example of this, and you can turn to 1 Kings 21, verses 1 to 3. 1 Kings 21, 1 to 3, and I'll start partway through the first verse. Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give thee a better vineyard for it, or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. It's what he was saying. No, uh, Naboth was a righteous and a law-abiding man. He understood it was not his land. It was God's land, and it was in his family, and he could not do whatever he wanted to do with it. Then he was approached by Ahab. What do you think of Ahab? Was he a God-fearing, law-abiding man? And we say, no. Ahab had no qualms about coming to buy that land. He did what he wanted to do, even if it was contrary to the law of God. And most of us know the story of how Naboth got killed by Ahab's wife's connivings. And he took the vineyard. But it cost Ahab dearly. Elijah came when uh, Ahab came to this vineyard and was inspecting it, who shows up? Elijah, 
Oh, thou mine enemy, did you show up? Did you find me? He said, yeah, I did. And this is what's going to happen. Ahab took someone's inheritance, but Ahab was not going to pass this inheritance to his children. The pronunciation that Kate is, God is going to make sure all of his male descendants are going to die. His whole family is going to be wiped out. Elijah said, dogs are going to lick up your blood and some of your children and grandchildren, the vultures, are going to eat. So you wanted this vineyard, Ahab? You got it, but this is the price. What is the equivalent today? Who owns you? Who owns me? Who is your owner? If God owns the land, who owns you? God gave you this life, this body, and this 70 odd years, more or less. But we are just tenant farmers in our bodies. That's what we are. We are tenant farmers. We do not own our bodies. Will we disregard the law of God and sell what has been entrusted to us if we would get a good offer from someone who has no respect or regard for the law of God? Because we get offers. We get lots of offers coming our way to sell ourselves, to... um, To do with our bodies basically what we want to do as if it is our own. And like Ahab, we can disregard the law and the will of God. We can be a king and make our own decision because we're king. That's what, that's what Jezebel told Ahab when he couldn't have that land and he put his face to the wall and he pouted. She said, You're the king. You can do what you want to do. And you know what? We can do the same thing. But if we do that, we will pay. We will pay and pay and pay. This is not a fire and brimstone message. But if you ignore God and run your own life, if you may be de- you may be deceived in thinking you are cool and you're going to win, but you won't. That sin or that thing or whatever it is that you do not surrender, that life that you will not yield in faith to the Lord Jesus will catch up to you sometime. And the forecast is not that dogs will lick your blood. The forecast is fire, and brimstone. Ahab found that out. Okay, so the land was a permanent family possession. But I had said there were two things, land and family. I thought about writing it up, land and family, but I think you got the the point. 
Israel's land and Israel's family lines. <clears throat> Let's learn about the law for Israel's family lines. Now you can turn to Deuteronomy if you want to. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6. And we'll soon get to the passage. We're just giving background so we can understand what's going on here, okay? Who is this Boaz? What for kinsman is he, okay? 25, 5 and 6. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So, the law prescribed that if a married man died before he had any children, at least any son. I'm not sure about all the different. The, the no child is always talked about as male children. Because when it talks about Seth had both sons and daughters. The word child here, have no child, is the word for son. And the word firstborn is the same thing. The word for a male child. So, if a man, married man died before had any children, at least any male children, the deceased man's brother was to marry the widow, and the first child would be considered the child of the dead husband, and that child would inherit that family's land. And the family, and the family line, with its allotment of land, would continue to go on and be perpetuated. So, now, let's get back to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. So I'll read the first five verses over again here. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But... Make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie. And thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she, Ruth, said unto Naomi, all that thou sayest unto me I will do. Okay. Um, where do you find this in the law of God? Is this a commanded procedure? Or even a recommended procedure? Ruth. About the time it gets dark... I want you to go down to that barn that's filled with some merry men. After they go to sleep, go to this particular man that you're interested in, in, and you stealthily sneak up to him, and you uncover him. And then wait till he wakes up, 
And when he wakes up, he'll tell you what to do. He'll take charge of the situation. Now, there are many books on courtship. I, Isaac, take thee, Rebecca. Uh, I kiss dating goodbye. Her hand in marriage. Bible, biblical courtship in the modern world. Courtship that glorifies God. Now we are going to add one more title. How to uncover the feet of your future husband. (laughs) It's going to be a bestseller. And why not? Here's a question. Why not, you young girls? Why would you not go to a boys' camp out and after they're in their sleeping bags, go up to the one you want to get married to and cut up to him and wait till he wakes up and see what he says? I mean, it's in the Bible, right? Godly, virtuous, obedient, loyal, Ruth did it. Can I get the husband of my dreams the same way? Well, let's slow down a little bit and let's consider a few other things, okay? Before we change the Titus 2 blog to a Ruth three blog and before we start a romance magazine named Ruth three let's examine a few other things a little closer here number one and get this one not everything that is described in the Bible is prescribed in the Bible okay This is especially true of the historical books of the Bible, both old and new. Noah was a man of great faith, and we admire Noah for that. He took his family and he got them in the ark. What a testimony of faith and obedience that Noah was. But none of us are building an ark. We can, of course, do it figuratively, but not literally. We are not called to do that. That was a descriptive event in history of a man of God who followed God, and that's what he did. Paul says in the New Testament that these things in the past were written for our learning, and we can learn from Noah. We can, without building an ark. It's similar in the book of Acts. Events are described that, occurred in the infancy of the church and we can learn from it but we're not commanded to do everything such as sell our property and lay it down at the apostles feet or live in a commune those are not commandments that is a description of what the early church did there's many things described in acts and other places how the early church moved and functioned under the guidance and inspiration of the holy spirit And as such, they were written for our learning also. Even the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas was for our learning. And it is actually, how should I say, it is, it is educational and instructive. How can that be? 
educational and instructed, the sharp disagreement. It helps us realize that these men of God, these mighty men of God, did have feet of clay. And to a little bit, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot, that's a little comforting. (laughs) But the Bible is also prescriptive. God made us, he owns us, he redeems us. And in Acts, that historical book, we have words by Paul that says, God commanded all men everywhere to repent. That is a prescription. Mankind must humble themselves, recognize their sin, take the medicine, the prescription that God gives If you don't take the prescription that the doctor gives you, you're not going to get well. And if you don't take the prescription that God gives you, you're not going to get well. So there is prescription all throughout the scripture. There's prescription of marriage, sexuality, headship, evangelism, stewardship, truthfulness. And I added another one this morning, forgiveness. Forgiveness is a prescription. It's not a description. The spirit of the age today is to take the prescriptions out of the scripture and replace them with description. Like that prescription that we you would see as a prescription is cultural for their day this is how they practice love back then this is how we practice love here now today and they change the prescription to a description that is the spirit of our age and we must be aware of that they did not understand science back then so we can change prescription to a description The point is, this passage is clearly descriptive. We are not about to have a brothers meeting discussion and change our courtship practices because of what Naomi did. Naomi told Ruth to do 3,300 years ago. Also, it seems that Naomi knew well enough both the character of Boaz and Ruth that she had a high level of confidence, even though it seemed to us like it still carried a certain amount of risk. It was a risk. And we might rightly ask the question, why did she not take a more conventional approach to do this? Why did she not? A more conventional approach of claiming her kinsman redeemer. And all I can say is I don't know for sure. I do have some ideas that I'll talk about a little later. Okay, Ruth chapter 3, verses 6, and we'll keep on reading. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. 
Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning. Inasmuch as thou hast follows thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, lie down until morning, lie down until the morning. And she lay at his feet until the morning, and she arose up before anyone could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Ruth was not a lone wolf or independent. She was not a rebel. She was not reading some romance novels, and then had a strong leading of the Lord to go down to the barn at night time. That was not the case at all. Naomi, her authority was in charge. And things go according to script. She manages to do everything that Naomi told her to do. She goes down to the barn, she uh, identifies where he's going to lay, and she actually gets to his feet, and uncovers him without being detected. Everything went according to plan. And at midnight, Boaz wakes up. Presumably, he is sleeping on the threshing floor because during those uncertain times, I guess there could be thieves or I don't know what, but maybe but just simply hard work that he stayed with to work overnight. I don't know for sure. But uh, during this period of time, while they were threshing and working hard, he stayed overnight there. And he wakes up, and he feels his blanket has been pulled off, and someone is at his feet. And he is startled. I mean, what if thieves come, you know, and you were sleeping? But he doesn't lose his composure like I might have. He doesn't get up and begin to club whoever's there. He maintains his composure and he asks, Who are you? She is awake and she identifies herself. She says, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. And she goes right to the juggler. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. But we might ask, what was her intent? What is she doing here when she says that? Was she asking him to have a relationship with her right then and there? She was, she was clean, perfumed, it was dark, and no one knew they were there. What was she asking? There were cases in scripture 
when a near kinsman was unwilling to take a widow and raise up children for the dead brother. In fact, the law specified what to do in that case. And I'm going to read it. I'm going to read what the law says. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and just reading on where I had been. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. The only reason I would possibly think maybe Ruth took this unconventional way, not Ruth, Naomi, is maybe Naomi was trying to avoid this situation. Maybe she wanted Boaz to be inclined toward Ruth and toward his duty. And so she put some emotional and sensual pressure on Boaz. I don't know. It's only my idea. But that's a fine line to walk. What if Boaz, after a hard day's work, tired and everything would have been lacking in resolve and self-control. This night could have ended up very differently. It could have ended up with sin and shame rather than the way it did. Should Naomi just have sat back and waited for God to move? Was she risking producing an Ishmael while she should have been waiting for an Isaac? When she made a move and told Ruth to go down and do this. I'm not going to pursue that into the ground right now. But sometimes the thought comes to us. When do you wait on the Lord? And when do you move forward in faith? You don't know the outcome. You don't know what's going to happen. But. You can't just stay and wait. Sometimes you need to move forward in faith. And that could be a topic in itself. But it's a question that we face today and we face it many times. He will tell you what to do. That's what Naomi had told Ruth. And Boaz does respond. And unlike me, I'm usually pretty slow in catching on what people are saying. But Boaz knew immediately what she meant. He caught on immediately what she was after. Ruth was proposing to him for marriage exactly as it is outlined in the word of God, in the law. And he knew immediately what her intentions were. 
It was not ulterior or sinful. It was completely lawful. Her intentions. And he starts right off with a commendation, and he says, "Blessed be thou, the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich." What's the reason for that blessing? He calls her daughter. This indicates that he was probably much older than her. Ruth was a young woman. She was a virtuous, hardworking, loyal, dedicated, and maybe even a pretty young woman. She might have had lots of opportunities to have a husband in Israel, in her place. She could have had a handsome young man. But then, what would have happened to Naomi, and what would have happened to Abimelech's family line? It would have died out if she would have married someone else. If Ruth would have married someone else, she would have followed that young, that new young husband to his family and to his land, and Naomi would have been left alone. Now you remember way back when Naomi and Ruth. We're still back in Moab. Before they came back, what did Ruth do? She pledged allegiance to Naomi and Naomi's God. She said, uh, "I can't quote it, but the whole the whole story that she said right now: Thy people shall be my people; your God shall be my God; your land, not the land, but whatever." She a whole story that she said. It is connected directly to Naomi. And to Naomi's people, and so she had pledged allegiance to Naomi and Naomi's God. And Ruth, in this case, was staying right on track, right on track with her commitment to Naomi. That's what she was doing. She was giving herself as a vessel, the means to salvage her widow mother-in-law's family line. And Boaz knows that he knows that, and he gives her the blessing. He says, "You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. When you came back with Naomi, she was showing loyalty to Naomi. She lived with Naomi. She、uh, gleaned for Naomi. But this is a much bigger step yet, more than before." Because you did not go after young men, you could have, but you didn't. You are showing loyalty. And then he says, "And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Fear not. Many times in Scripture we find those words, 'Fear not,' and they are comforting words." Boaz is saying, "You might, you were afraid I might not do this. Fear not, I will." And dear Ruth, it is not because of your clean young body or your perfume or your clothes. You are a virtuous woman. Everyone knows you are a virtuous woman.
That's the reason he gave. And young women, I'd like to speak to you a little bit. Make this your primary focus in preparation for a possible future marriage. Not your stylish hairdo or your bright or tight clothes or your polished nails or your plucked eyebrows or your pushing the boundary styles. Be presentable and neat. Please do. (laughs) But it is the character and grace of a woman that is beautiful in God's sight and in a young man's sight. A godly young man who has not succumbed to the spirit of the world. I will do everything for you that you need, Boaz said. But, and there is a but, (laughs) there is another kinsman, and he's nearer than I am. He's in line before me. At this point, it seemed pretty clear that Ruth desires Boaz. And it seemed that Boaz desires Ruth. It seemed to be there was probably some things going already. They knew each other for a number of months. And there may have been an emotional connection already. We can't tell for sure, but probably was. But feelings must not dictate behavior. Feelings can, and they are an influencer, influencer and a motivator. But they must never dictate. Boaz is ruled by principle and by law. Now that sounds really cold. You want to get married to a man that's ruled by principle and law? (laughs) That sounds so cold, but it is not. It's strength and virtue. It's true manhood. He will not violate Ruth. Okay? He will not do that. He did not let his feelings go on. But neither will he violate someone else that's in line ahead of him. He was a man of principle. And he went by the law. And he would not let his feelings override that. He was going to go to proper means. That is a man of strength and virtue. I admire Boaz. So he will not violate someone else's rights, even when his feelings are strongly pulling him a different direction. So here's the plan, Ruth. Here's the plan. There is another kinsman earlier, nearer. I will make sure, but here's the plan. Tarry here this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he do not the part of a kinsman unto thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, so lie down, as the Lord liveth, so lie down until the morning. 
And she lay down at his feet until the morning, and then she arose up before any, before one could know another. It was still dark, and he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Boaz wanted to protect Ruth from scandal. If it gets out that this foreigner, this outsider, this Moabitess woman slept in a barn with some men at nighttime. There's going to be gossip. There's going to be surmisings. There's going to be accusations that are going to go around the community and come back. And there will be question marks over her character. Boaz is not going to let that get out. Do you know that some secrets are okay? It's okay to keep some secrets from public. It's not hypocrisy, and it's not cover-up. He was clear with his motives, and he did not doubt her motives. Their consciences were clear. But no matter how you cut it, it would have been very hard to explain this to the, to the village people. It just would have been. It had all the potential of becoming the gossip of the town. And like I said, put a big question mark over Ruth and over her character. So he does all he can to protect her reputation. Also, he said, bring the veil that thou hast and hold it. And then when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city. I found this by Bishop Hall. I have no idea who he is, but he had a quote that I liked. So I'm going to read it. Boaz, instead of touching her as a wanton, I mean, as a prostitute or whatever, He blesses her as a father, encourages her as a friend, promises her as a kinsman, rewards her as a patron, and sends her away laden with hopes and gifts, no less chaste, but more happy than when she came. All admirable temperance, worthy the progenitor of him whose lips and heart there was was no guile. Of course, that's reference to Boaz being in the ancestry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a worthy ancestor. I know it goes both ways. We look at the ancestry line of Jesus, that physical line that goes back, and we see Rahab the harlot, and we see the Moabitess uh, Ruth here, and we see some others maybe less less desirable, and we glory that there can be in that lineage such a kind of people because to one degree or another, that's who we all are. (laughs) But it is just as admirable to see godly people in that lineage and and, and, um, emulate those people today. Sometimes today I get the idea that 
Well, I'm not sure if I can communicate quite what I'm thinking. I may not be able to. The idea that the, the, you, you lift up the badness of people as an example of God's mercy and grace. And that is good. And I appreciate that. And we all need that. But let us also live up, uh, lift up the heroes of the faith and say, I know God does save those that are down in the gutter. But not everybody has to be down there. To be, we all, I, I can't get it together. But I just sometimes we lift up the wickedness more than we lift up the uh, examples of godly people. That's all I'm trying to say without getting it quite out right. So, she left with hopes and gifts, and she left no less chaste but more happy than when she came. I'm going to read there. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then she said, If it's Naomi, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. Who art thou? She asked. Are you Ruth the betrothed? Or are you Ruth the single? <laughs> How did it go for you? I wonder what Naomi did that night. I wonder if she slept that night. I wonder if she spent before the throne of God. I don't know what she was doing. But she was definitely very, very interested. And on her first date, she went home and she told her mother-in-law everything that the first date consisted of. Okay? (laughs) Is that something we can emulate or is that just descriptive? (laughs) Don't do anything, couples, that you could not take home and tell. Naomi was also was satisfied. She said, this man is on a roll. Things are going to happen quickly. We have done our part. Now we can sit back. Now we can wait. We have done our part. We can sit tight. And so ends our study of Ruth for one night. Through it, we see a loyalty and integrity and reverence to God's law. Through this night of Ruth's life, we see loyalty, we see integrity, and we see reverence for God's law. Now, that is descriptive, but that is actually prescriptive for us also. And we can be encouraged by God's people as we look at their lives. And Lord willing, we will then see, maybe in, maybe in two weeks, how things will come to a conclusion. And look at the true kinsman redeemer next time, I hope, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who became as one of us so he could buy us back, that he could preserve our life 
and give us his land. He did that. And we'll study that more in detail in the future. Job 29, verse 25. And this is another, it's another place where the kinsman redeemer word is used. And it is Job speaking, for I know that my redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. So may God bless you. May, um, may we all be as virtuous as Ruth and Boaz. May God bless you.